It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 65, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Jeremy Mueller and his wife, Ashley, operate Excelsior Farm just outside of Eugene, Oregon. Together, they raise produce for restaurant sales, retail grocers, and a small CSA to make a modest living on less than two acres. Jeremy and Ashley are starting their fourth year at Excelsior with the recent birth of their daughter. Jeremy shares the story of how he got started with Excelsior Farm, which is owned by the owner of Eugene's Excelsior Restaurant. We get into how he's worked with the scale that's available to him, using a small tractor to keep up with bed preparation and weed control, in addition to the standard BCS tools that you would expect to find on that two-acre scale. Jeremy and Ashley have a reputation for achieving excellent weed control, working efficiently, and Jeremy tells us about some of his favorite tools and adaptations for minimizing labor while maximizing production. We also delve into the challenges of getting started in the already crowded local food scene of Eugene, including evolving choices about markets and product configurations that have helped them to grow their business. This was a fun episode to record. I really enjoyed talking to Jeremy, and I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it for you. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Growing for Market magazine, America's most respected source for news and ideas about the business of growing and selling vegetables, fruits, cut flowers, plants, herbs, and other food products. Growingformarket.com. Jeremy Mueller, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's exciting to have you on the show. I'd like to start by just having you tell us a little bit about Excelsior Farm, in your own words, kind of how you got there and and what the farm is right now. Starting with a little history of the farm, we have to actually go to when the Excelsior restaurant um, was bought by Maurizio Papero, who's a uh, bought their restaurant over 20 years ago, or I, you know, something around there 20 years ago. I'm pretty bad with time. And he's been running that restaurant in town and he, He ended up getting a home outside of town in Pleasant Hill and really had this vision for starting a farm for his restaurant so he could have this farm-to-table restaurant and very much in this slow food kind of spirit. Um, He had had met Carlo Petrini um, and probably goes without saying, but Maurizio Papero is... Italian, so he was born and partly raised in Italy. So he just has this whole kind of food, slow food kind of drive behind what he's doing at the Excelsior restaurant. So it kind of made sense for him to start his own farm. So he, he, you know, bought this house in the country and had a little bit of acreage in the front. Um, and so it was originally his vision, and this would be before. I even came around and so he built a pole barn and he put up a fence to keep the deer and elk out of this garden area and even put up a couple smaller hoop houses. So it was a kind of a bold move in like 2008 when there was a bit of a recession from what I understand Um, and he was kind of thinking I want in, in I want to invest close to home and something real. You know, when the stock market's going up and down, like, you know, this is something I believe in. This is kind of this slow food, farm to table, 
close to home kind of investing. So so that's really where it started. Then there was a bit of a a rough patch because anyone so as much as Maurizio loves the farm and this whole slow food thing, he's very much not a farmer. Um, you know, he he's a restaurateur and he has he he he's a kind of an has an executive position at another winery and all these things. So, you know, obviously he's a very busy person. He's actually not um, on the farm really barely at all. So um, he needed someone to manage it and run it. And he had actually a very difficult time um, the first five years making it work. So it just kind of lost money every year. Um, And anyone who really knew how to farm kind of was farming and was like, I don't have time to, you know, even, you know, he'd say, oh, do you want to farm, you know, help me manage my farm on top of running your farm and, you know, all the farmers right. were saying, <laughs> no way, like, we're, you know, we're already working 70 hours a week or whatever it is. Um, so it was a long time that he was really trying to make it work, but it was, it was actually, I'd say relatively like not successful in the first five years, um, and and for for a number of different reasons, but mostly because he just couldn't quite find the right help, and he found some good help, but it was maybe just you know people with not quite the right skill set, or people who had a background in uh, with livestock and things where not necessarily unskilled people, but just not quite a good fit. Um, so I think he started to realize that he needed to have someone run it really as a separate business who could, um, it, uh, I guess run it as a separate business and make the numbers work. And, and that would require probably doing a CSA, doing market, doing, um, wholesale to other restaurants and natural food stores and doing kind of going the whole deal are kind of going the whole way of having a whole farm business run by someone who is going to put in the time and the sweat equity to get it off the ground. So that's kind of where I entered the picture. Um, and maybe I can backtrack to a little my, my personal history, but that would be uh, three three seasons ago when I came on we had a, a kind of a nice uh, agreement to where I could come on as a farm manager. And, you know, with the infrastructure that was there, it was a lot of great infrastructure. But as, as you know, Chris, like just because you have a barn, a tractor and a hoop house and a fence, which is a lot of infrastructure, um, you don't have a farm still, you know, right. It looks like a farm. It looks, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's the funny thing when someone's who's building a farm, who's not necessarily a farmer, you build something that looks like a farm, but you realize in the end, a farm is like, is a farm has to be someone's whole life. You know? I'm, yeah. The and, farm is the farmer. I mean, that's just, yeah, exactly. That, so it was kind of this hollow shell, you know, um, that I, I walked into and it's, and it was a good shell, but I mean, there was no refrigeration and no, uh, there was water run to the property, but no, um, irrigation 
well, I should say not a lot of irrigation infrastructure in place and um, not really an idea of what they would grow or where they would sell it or anything. Um, so he just kind of, I guess in a sense, he took a chance on me. I, I think also it could be said I kind of took a chance on him because I spent the next three years working, you know, six days a week um, building this, you know, building the farm. And so it's been a really good partnership. Um, and we've said from the beginning that uh, we could move uh, from this farm manager um, position that's as an employee to a um, to us leasing the land and running it completely as a separate business. Um, and the way that's worked has been really good, actually. This next year, it'll just be a straight lease, and it'll be um, Ashley's and my business that we're running on his land growing still for his restaurant um, and keeping the Excelsior name, but um, also selling to other restaurants. And especially uh, we're doing a lot more for natural food stores. We also have a small CSA program and stuff. So I can get into that in a little bit, but that was the story of the farm. Then you mentioned that, that you came into this with some experience. I'm, I'm curious why, why you, what, what brought you and made you a good bet in this situation? Right. My background um, is actually, I did landscaping and tree trimming and just, I guess what I call gardening, but most people, it'd just be like landscape maintenance kind of stuff. Um, so not from really uh, prestigious background or anything, just like manual labor outside working with to, you know, hand tools and small engines, you know, kind of a thing. Um, so I, I started doing that in high school, or I guess when I was 14, I started doing that part-time, did that for five years, um, and re actually really enjoyed it. And everyone was saying, like, oh, I wonder what Jeremy's going to do, like, you know, when he gets a real job or something. But I was just like, you know, I really enjoy working outside and working with tools. Um, so then I spent a couple years traveling and doing different things. Um, and then I spent another five years when I moved to Eugene, Oregon, just doing landscaping and tree trimming. Uh, so I guess I was, a, yeah, that's kind of what I did, but I always, especially the five years I was working in Eugene as a landscaper, um, I was really wanting to transition into some kind of agricultural, uh, some kind of agricultural job, I guess, or a career. And mostly, I guess, after all these years of cutting lawns and um, putting in irrigation systems and all of these things, I just started to see, like, I'd really rather be growing food um, than just working in people's yards. And I, like I said, I really enjoyed landscaping and stuff, but I felt like that it might be a little more meaningful to be growing organic produce. So I just started slowly, in what ways I could, kind of inching towards that. And what that looked like for me is I started as a side job, 
I started this little market garden in the Whitaker neighborhood. Uh, and it was just, it was a really uh, like juvenile attempt, you know, kind of very like, you know, I didn't make any money off it for sure, but it was just my way of like, I've got to do something to try to move towards this. So I got a hold of Elliot Coleman's book, The New Organic Grower, and I made my soil blocks and we had put up a, some friends and I had put up a greenhouse. And I think it was only like something like a quarter or a fifth of an acre, you know, lot. And uh, I did a work trade with the owners of the property to use it. Um, so I guess you could say I got my start in urban farming, but <laughs> I never thought of myself as an urban farmer. I always thought of that as a stepping stone to get out of town because I always really wanted to live in the country. So anyway, so that was my first step. So that was a good little step. But really what that first step taught me is that I really didn't know a lot about what I was trying to um, do. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, this is, there's a lot more to this than, than people think or than I thought. So, well, right. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like the tractor and the barn and the, and the greenhouse where it, it looks like a farm, uh -huh. but then you find out that there's a whole lot more to it, there's you a, know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was, I was out there and I was like, wow, this is, you know, I grew up bunch of nice veggies. I had a couple wholesale accounts and a, like 15 or so CSA members. And I was like, oh, that was really cool. But there's so much more to this. And I want to learn. And, and I'm like, I realized at that point, I could do this the hard way and just like slam it, like for the next five years and try to learn everything on my own. Or I can just go work on a farm. Right. Um, it, for, for my situation, that was what I was looking, that's, that's what I saw as my options. Like I can kind of try to go my own route or I can just learn from someone who's really doing this. And right. that might be a different route for everyone. I mean, you know, some people can just learn on their own and maybe not work on a production farm or something. But for me, I really needed that. Um, so, well, and I think especially in a in an area like Eugene, which is such a rich area for market farming, yeah. it seems like it would be, you know, you, you can't do a half-assed job of getting into that market and expect to last for a long time. Yeah, I, you're exactly right. And we it's probably worth talking a little bit about the market here, too. Um, but anyways, so so what I did is I actually looked around and I said, well, I'm I guess what I did is I went to farmer's market and I just said, who has like the biggest, nicest stand. Right. And then yeah. just got a job working for that farm, mostly just based on the fact that I knew how to work um, because I'd done landscaping for years. And that was a, the largest organic farm in the area, groundwork organics. Um, and it was, it was a pretty wild ride. I just spent one season out there um, so, you know, it's not like I have tons of years, but it's like a, a little over a hundred acres in production and, uh, sell, selling more or less statewide. But I, I didn't know that at the time I got a job there. I just went to the farmer's market in Eugene and, uh, just kind of, that's kind of how ignorant I was about a lot of things. 
So I just went out there and they really kind of threw me into it, which I really appreciate. Um, so I was able to, you know, drive pretty much every tractor they had. And so cultivate on a G and, you know, disc, you know, 20 acres at a time and set up beds and fertilize with the hydraulic, you know, spreader in front of a culty mulcher from BW implement and like, you know, big, kind of big stuff. Um, right. And, uh, and so that was a totally different experience. You know, I went from my quarter acre market garden that was not managed all that well because I was so, um, inexperienced to just being kind of thrown into this really larger scale production. Um, but with, I guess with my background in landscaping and which doesn't seem like it would have tons of crossover, but there was just enough, you know, cause, because I had designed and installed irrigation systems and just worked outside you know, I mean, when I went to work on the farm, I just put on my, my same muck boots, you know, or whatever, extra tufts, and put on my same straw hat that I'd been using for my other job and went and worked in the field with guys. And, you know, so there, there was enough crossover there, and I learned a lot in that season. It was also not, even at the end of one season, I could really tell, like, this is really not the scale that I'm most suited for. Um, and it's probably, so all that to say is, you know, I, I just work in there one season, seasonal job, but they, they were really nice and they gave me a lot of opportunity to try a lot of different things. I kind of moved on and found this opportunity out here at Excelsior Farm. So it was actually a, a pretty quick transition for you from, yeah. from being a landscaper to actually ending up with your own, what was really your own operation to run. It's funny because... When I talk to people, I tell them like, oh, you know, if you want to go from like zero to 60, like not being a farmer to being a farmer, I'm always telling people, oh, it's probably five year, seven year kind of transition. Um, but it's, it's funny that I say that. And then for me, it was really this kind of whirlwind sort of a thing. Because um, while I was doing the market garden in the Whitaker, I was still landscaping for my regular job. So it's really that one year at groundwork and then um, and then coming out here. So I guess the next little part in the story would be, you know, Excelsior Farm is a really different scale than than either the market garden or or the large, large scale, you know, hundred acres. Um when I originally came out here Maurizio, the owner, not being a farmer, he was kind of like, oh, I don't know, it's like five or seven acres or something like that. <laughs> and, I, and I, you know, I got out here and it's it's actually what it is, is like a three and a half acre triangle. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, that's, you know, if, you know, if you're out looking at farms, you know, you don't, you kind of look for square farms generally, not like triangles, but but I was like, you know, we can make something work here. And, um, and it, there was a decent amount of like floundering for me in that first year because, uh, 
you know, I worked on this teeny scale with like a BCS and stuff in the little market garden. And then I'd gone to this really large scale and obviously taking over the farm here, I didn't really have, you know, I was thinking like, okay, I'll set up my beds. And I was like, okay, do I do like these Elliot Coleman 42 inches on center or do I do like 72 inches on center? you know, beds, you know, cause I just, I worked with this teeny scale and this huge scale. So now I've been kind of trying to figure out, you know, how, what, what will work for me on the farm here. And there's been a decent amount of kind of ping ponging around, um, with market gardening techniques. And then we've moved into more, uh, using like a small tractor. So we're kind of this in between gale, which is sometimes kind of difficult. And it seems like your scale is really a function of the land that you had available rather than saying, you know, this is where I want to be from a scale perspective. And I think that's, that's exactly right, Chris. Um, I run into a lot of people right now who are like, oh, that's so cool. Like you kind of are like sticking to your acre and a half um, I guess we're doing two acres now in production, but, um, you know, you're doing this like acre and a half, um, thing, which I, I'm all for, and I think is really cool. Um, kind of, that's been, uh, kind of put forth or publicized by JM and Elliot Coleman. And obviously I have a really pretty deep connection with what they're doing because they've, been sources of information for me and that really is kind of in a sense of scale we're working on um but there's several like really pretty significant differences as well and those would be uh we don't live on the farm because we're moving into just leasing the land and obviously so it's always been kind of a commuting job for me uh ashley and i my wife and I actually found a little place right up the street. So that's nice that we just live really close. Um, but we don't have a live on farm internship program, for example. And we we don't really have, we, we've had part-time help. So we have hired people and currently we have a delivery driver, which is great uh, that I'm not always doing all the deliveries. Um, but our work, our workforce is like Ashley and I, and since we just had a kid, uh, it's me. <laughs> so, right. so the first two years I was running the farm, Ashley and I were dating and then engaged, but she was, it was a long distance relationship. I mean, we met, met here in Oregon, but she went off to finish her master's degree out in New York. So, so it was just me for the first two years. Um, and then the third year we were married and we were working together, which was amazing. We just made a lot more progress because we were doing things together and we really enjoy working together. But now that we had the, had the kid, I mean, we have a daughter that's five weeks old. So, um, it's kind of back to just me. So for the, really the majority of running the farm apart from a couple part-time interns and a little part-time help it's kind of it's been a one one person farm 
Wow. I mean, when you're structured as a one person farm, like you said, you're you're kind of in between on scales. You're not doing the JM 40A style, uh, you know, rototiller and 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 an acre and a half of super intense production. But you're also not doing the 100 acre style. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're managing your two acre in between or scale? Yeah. Um so I should I should make clear we have run it very similar to JM's farm. Actually for a lot for a little while people were kind of thinking of us as like the sister farm to Lagrillanet and stuff, almost because we were when his book came out, we were using the BCS and the uh, rotary plow, power harrow. And it's a great tool and it's been a good experience using that. And I've used BCS ever since I did landscaping work. So Um, I was kind of familiar with that, but we have 200, 100 foot long raised beds on the farm or so. And it just became too much for me to maintain it. And I started talking with other market gardeners um, and realizing like, oh, a lot of them are having two to four interns that are full time and two full time employees and the and the to you know a couple that own it like running it so it's a really vast difference between one to two people being on the farm in the middle of summer and six people and that's not to say one's better than the other it's just in our situation we couldn't rely on on like cheap or free labor or or in at the, because we were still kind of getting it off the ground we couldn't rely on a lot of hired labor as well Oh, so yeah, so what we've done is we've actually kind of moved into a little more mechanization um, and we'll probably increasingly move in that direction. So for setting up our beds now, I'm just using a small Kubota tractor, like 38 horse. And uh, I've got the wheels. So because we're not on the scale that we'd have all the like mechanical transplanter and probably maybe eventually if we expand a little bit, but um, because we don't have mechanical transplanting stuff going and um, we do a lot of stuff by hand still, we're sticking with a 30 inch bed tops, four feet on center, which is similar to JM's, which is the same as as JM's farm. But we're we're kind of moving towards forming and and maintaining semi-permanent raised beds that do get tilled, um, you know, the, as far as tillage or minimal tillage, we're probably more to a just a kind of more typical organic farm because we do till and reform these beds. I have a bed former that bolts onto the back of the tiller um, that we that we use, you know, pretty regularly. Um, so we're... We're using the small tractor anyways to to make it more possible for us to keep up with bed preparation so we can lay compost with the tractor, form the beds, maintain the beds, and then uh, cultivate mechanically. So I've been pretty a, a real stickler for having a really defined, consistent raised bed um, since we started using the tractor so that I can use a toolbar cultivator that would, you know, cultivate the paths, bedsides. And 
the bed tops we can cultivate if we have one or two rows in a bed and if we have three rows i take those knives or i flip them upside down and then i just do the bed top for three rows with a wheel hoe um which okay like a goose foot and the tine weeder on the offset wheel hoe so it's almost like almost like a cultivating tractor but you know it's not the push back and forth oscillating hoe. It's just kind of straight ahead um, with the wheel hoe to cultivate that bed top. Well, and your your weed control. I mean, from what from what I've seen online, and and also from what I've heard from other people. In fact, one of the people that asked me to have you on the show was like, their weed control is amazing. They don't have any weeds. Mm-hmm. Well, I I wish that was true, <laughs> um, but we we do um try really hard um to to keep on top of weeds and it's not just the the cultivation but it's what i think any good farmer would talk as much of much about as much about cultivation as they would um like preventing weeds so we do a lot of um stale bedding flame weeding and pre-emergent uh flame weeding for for any crops that that we're able to do that on so that we don't have to um you know like we don't have time to pick weeds out of salad mix or anything like that so that's that's it's all kind of on our farm it's like mostly about strategy of preventing and um depleting the the weed seeds in that top two inches of soil and then the rest is about you know setting up the cultivation um so that we can do it as efficiently as possible because unfortunately we we're really it's not a possibility or an option for us right now to uh cultivate everything by hand with right yeah so, yeah, there's not enough hours in the day if, right, if you're running uh, that pretty much on your own. Yeah, and especially not right now when it's down to just me and because Ashley's got a full-time job right now, you know, recovering and taking care of the baby. She does a little bit of seed starting maybe like the last couple of weeks. She's been easing back into it. So a little bit of recreational seed starting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Plus she wanted to get back to, to something, you know, just to. Um, cause she, you know, I mean, being cooped up for a while in bed and stuff is she's, she likes to, she's an active person. So she likes to be out and about. Right. Right. So is there a reason that you haven't gone to a cultivating tractor? Uh, mostly it, it's mostly because up until this point, um, we've just been so small, like. I say we're doing two acres this season, but because it was one person farm when I, the first year it was like one acre or maybe a little over one acre and then one and a half, one and three quarters last year and two this year. Um, so, you know, the first couple of years were just like acre or just over an acre. Um, it kind of made more sense to us to just like hand cultivate some stuff and try to figure out things with the wheel hoe or I should say to me because it was just me out there 
Um, right. <laughs> Ashley kind of came along later. Um, but uh, we, we, you know, we would like to probably eventually get a G or a tough built. Um, but it just hasn't been in the budget. We, there's so many things in, ahead of that right now. Um, if we can just make it work with the toolbar cultivating uh, setup and the some some wheel hoe stuff and you know maybe a little just touch up with with by you know by hand with hoes um then that that seems to be reasonable right now um i also i i guess that's that's all i i i would love to have a cultivating tractor but it's kind of just you know first we got to get our barrel washer set up and our you know some just some other labor saving things um to make it more possible for us to, to do what we're doing so, so i do want to get i do want to dig in just a little bit more jeremy on the weed control aspect on your farm because i mean the, you know it's one thing to say oh yeah you know we're really aggressive about doing our weed control but i mean clearly there's something you're doing right i mean uh-huh. looking at all these pictures i mean you, you kind of poo-pooed it earlier when i said it but there are no weeds on your farm jeremy so, <laughs> yeah, um, I guess I'd preface this a little bit with, I, I normally take pictures of the things that look good on our farm. I don't, I don't seek out the, the worst beds, but, um, with that said, we do, um, the, the first tool I bought when I came to Excelsior Farm was, uh, that flame weeder from the guy that makes them out in, uh, West Virginia somewhere I got kind of forgotten his name but he has a flameweeders.com I believe it is or something like that yeah and it's a really simple lightweight tool um but so that that was the first tool I bought and I and this is one of these flameweeders that has like the is this the four the four torch model or the five torch model with the wheel on it yeah, so this would be the five torch model with the wheel on it, which is fitted to a thirty inch bed top. Um, if you roll the wheel down the middle of the bed, it covers the bed top. Um, also, I found interestingly enough, if you you know if you're on a one two three row bed system, it's thirty inches on top. If you roll it on the outside row, it actually covers over past half the bed and then past half the, the walkway, so you can actually um, flame the bed top side and path, you know, it's two passes per bed. Um, but that way you get the whole surface area. Um, that's, um, anyways, just a little tip, but, uh, the, so from the very beginning, I was really into this like strategy of, of weeds, um, and preventing weeds. And it goes all the way back to uh, when I was doing landscaping work. Actually, that's the first place that I learned about and used stale seedbed techniques was, <laughs> interestingly enough, was actually in, wasn't for establishing beds of salad mix. It was for growing lawns, you know, that don't have weeds in them, <laughs> right? Right, uh, right. Know, so we would prep a whole area and we would you know, turn on the irrigation and water it and we let it go for a couple of weeks and sprout all these weeds. And then we would go over it with, uh, you know, 
some kind of shallow cultivation, whether it's a thatch, we would use a thatcher, you know, which is really similar to like a power harrow, <laughs> you know, if you think about it right. for using on flat ground and stuff. So, so I was really kind of prepared in ways I didn't even realize. Um, like I said, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of crossover, but for a small scale farmer, there's a lot of uh, skills. There's, it's a really similar skill set. Um, actually, you know, r- running a small business, um, you know, working with clients face to face. And anyways, in this case, even that's where I learned about stale seed bed preparation. And uh, then I read Elliot Coleman's book and learned, you know, kind of that reinforced it. And so from day one, that was the first tool I bought. And I saw that as, you know, one of the most important tools on my farm because, you know, I just knew if you can kill these weeds when they're at that thread stage, you know, you've just saved yourself so much work. Um, and so we, we've just, I guess I've always been experimenting with that. I do most of the field work at the farm. Um, still as far as the growing and uh i do all the direct sowing and then we do other things together um ashley and i do but so i i guess that's just been part of our farm from the very beginning um okay and i've been experimenting more with tarps uh but i've i actually am leaning for the main season stuff i'm leaning more towards stale seed bed and flame weeding and shallow cultivation uh i i guess that's that's the main methods we're using um the the pre-emergent flame weeding i think is something that i i think elliot's book has a really good um explanation of that and diagram even or not diagram but kind of like visual explanation of that whole process um and of the, that whole idea that the 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 weed seeds are coming up and the 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 carrot seed is is still sitting there in the ground right basically yeah yeah i mean if i was to throw out just like a general timeline it would be like prep your beds all your soil amendments are down um and you're gonna like probably irrigated unless it's you know rains a little or something and then uh you're gonna you're gonna sprout those weed seeds for you know let it probably a normal generally like a two-week interval and then seed your carrots to um into essentially like a weedy bed which is a little counterintuitive um and then you're gonna wait till just before those carrots pop up out of the ground or emerge and you're going to flame weed the bed just before they emerge. And then your carrots emerge in a weed free bed. So it's just a way of giving them a head start because they're such a slow germinator, but we also do it, you know, like a lot of people, we do it with beets, you know, carrots, beets. Uh, I need to use it for cilantro a little bit, even for dill. Um, and then just pretty much any crop we can try to do that pre-emergent flame weeding and any crop that's transplanted, um, if possible is stale bedded, flame weeded, and then transplanted pretty much like 
a lot of times I'm bringing transplants out and my flame weeder at the same time so I can flame a bed and transplant in like, you know, the same couple of hours. How many times are you then cultivating after that typically? Is it, I mean, obviously that doesn't take care of, that takes care of the first flush of weeds. Right. It doesn't take right. care of the next oh, flush yeah. of weeds. There's always more, always more. <laughs> yeah. Um, generally, I'd say two or three times. Okay. And so and then, it does become very important that, that you can do that quickly because, you know, if you're talking 45 minutes of bed um, to cultivate by hand really well or just driving down that bed with the tractor, it's a really different, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a lot faster. So that's made sense for us. Now, in in the climate there in Eugene, um, I was just out in, I was out in Corvallis in, uh, I think it was late February, mid-February, mm-hmm. um, and and there were, I mean, it seemed like there was some potential for things to be growing outside, but there there really wasn't much going on. What kind of a season do you guys have there in Eugene? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, our, so our uh, last frost date out here at the farm is going to be something around mid-April. Um, so we're planting out, you know, we've got about half of our pl- farm planted right now with uh, the, our, you know, brassicas and our first couple successions of salad mix. Um, but we're not, you know, we're, we haven't planted tomatoes out in the field yet or anything. Um, we're actually, tomorrow I'm planting all of our uh, tomatoes and cucumbers into our covered hoop houses. And then our field ones are going out a little later. So if that gives you an idea, um, and then our, our frost day, it really, there's a lot of little microclimates around Eugene, um, because there's different elevations outside of town so that your, your first frost date can, could vary quite a bit. Um, but ours is kind of like generally the, I'm thinking like the end of October, the beginning of November kind of a thing. Um, and obviously it varies a lot from year to year, but that'd be your average for where I am. How long are you guys able to extend your outdoor harvest then in the fall? I mean, obviously tomatoes have, have a limited lifespan, but you know, kale and stuff, are you able to keep that going into the winter? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's a, it's a good climate for that. Um, you know, you have good years and bad years for overwintering brassicas. Um, but generally good years. And uh, it's not something we've specialized in at all because we are so uh, space, we're so limited on the space we have right now or um, that, you know, we only dedicate a certain amount of the garden to brassicas. And then after that, you just have to um, grow more salad mix and things that make sense for someone with a smaller land base. Um, Right. But uh, all that to say is through the winter, I mean, you can, there's, this winter was pretty mild, was actually very mild. Um, and last year was the hottest year, as far as I know, the hottest year in recorded weather history. So things have been a little crazy. Um, but yeah, we can, we can go dig up carrots a lot of times in the middle of winter, you know, December, January, um, you know, out of the field. 
even, you know, and uh, if sometimes, you know, I row cover, double row cover them in the field. Um, and we're kind of moving more towards if, if I can get more uh, fridge space built, we would like to dig them earlier and store them in the fridge than have them in the field because it's a little more risky out there. But um, right. you get the idea. It's, it's a, I guess people call it a more of a mild maritime climate, maybe. I'm not sure what that means, but um, it means that it ain't Wisconsin. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, and so it's really pretty mild and really good for a lot of these brassica crops. It's almost like the climate made for brassicas, I feel like. And then, like, there's a lot more kale and a lot more brassica greens grown here a lot um, than than a lot of other places, I guess. Um, with that said, the winter before last was like the one of the coldest winters on history. And out here at my farm, it got down to like 15 below, which is, oh wow, I've never even heard of that happening ever. I mean, it was pretty crazy. So needless to say, we kind of lost, lost some stuff. So, um, yeah, that put a dent in your overwintering brassicas yeah, plans. Yeah. You have this, you know, typically it's getting down to maybe the, 20s teens you know maybe 15 would be like a low the lowest low for a winter um but 15 below was whole third you know it was totally unheard of um so things happen but but we have a generally real mild really nice growing climate great all right and with that jeremy we're gonna stop here get a word from our sponsors and then we'll be right back sounds good thanks Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges organic growers face, and they combine that with the comprehensive of understanding of soil and plant science and an intuitive comprehension that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost and inhaling deeply as though they were sampling a fine brandy. Vermont Compost is the real thing, built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. Oh, By the way, the donkeys are the real thing, and you get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Growing for Market magazine. I first ran into Growing for Market in 1993 while working at Wisconsin's Harmony Valley Farm, and I've been a subscriber ever since. At Harmony Valley Farm, I learned that information is the number one coin of our realm, and it provides an almost infinite return on investment. Then, as now, there were a lot of farming magazines out there. There were also a lot of gardening magazines, but other than Growing for Market, there were no other market farming magazines available. And I have to say, I've learned something from every issue over the past 23 years. Growing for Market was founded by a farmer with the idea of fostering the exchange of news and ideas about market farming among market farmers themselves. In fact, Growing for Market was one of the inspirations for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Available by mail or online, Growing for Market also offers options to access the archive of everything published from 2001 to the present, an invaluable, searchable reference. Subscribe today at growingformarket.com. 
All right, and we're back with Jeremy Mueller from Excelsior Farm out in, well, not in Eugene, Oregon, but awfully close to Eugene, Oregon. Um, so, Jeremy, one of the things that that came up, the person that asked me to get you on the show said you guys are really focused on efficiency. And when I look through everything online, it's really clear that you've come up with a lot of innovative ways of getting things done on the farm. I mean, at two acres, I mean, you mentioned that you're that you're spreading materials out in the field. I mean, that's probably more than you're handling with a garden cart. But if you're doing 30 inch beds, you can't exactly go out and drive through the field with a manure spreader. Mm-hmm. How are you handling things like that? Yeah. So we've had to get pretty creative, um, partially because we're at this point um, working with a, it's a one to two person farm. And. And we're kind of an in-between scale, you know, at this two acres. So um, there are things, if if we had a little more room and we weren't so constricted in this little triangle, um, I would say we would probably just find a smaller manure spreader so that it could be a one-person job to spread uh, the, the compost. Um, but so we've kind of, I got this idea from a friend to just, you know, if you have a single small tractor that fits your beds to just use uh, the three point hitch and hook up uh, forks to the back, you know, just the simple forks that you can hook up to the three point hitch. Uh, some people call it like a carry all or something. And I just built a box that's the width of our loader on the front of the tractor. So and it has a tailgate on the back. So, you know, on our scale, it's a, it's kind of funny, but it's and it's a two-person job to spread compost, but what we do is I just drop that box next to the compost pile and I scoop out of the pile and fill it up, and then I pick it up with the back of the tractor and uh Ashley drives it down the bed and I just shovel compost out the back. And it's really improved our ability to lay compost because um I think we can do 24 beds in, gosh, I, th- I think it's four hours. In four hours, we can compost 24 beds. And that's like the equivalent of, say, three three wheelbarrows of compost per bed. Um, okay. So it's, it's just kind of a way on our scale with, with that limited amount of headroom to turn around with a spreader in tow uh, that we've been able to make it work. Um, well, and I would think it would also just be nice from a precision of application standpoint, which I think is difficult to get with a spreader too. It, that's true as well. Yeah. So it is pretty even and pretty well put down. Um, some other things that are creating efficiencies on our farm is uh, just using a drop spreader for all the fertilizer application um, rather than doing it by hand, which most smaller market gardens would still would still be doing it by hand um so just just this season actually we finally got a drop spreader that fits our beds and just drive down the bed you know set calibrate it right and that's that also puts down it our uh fertilizer really evenly so that's nice um yeah we what we were our target was um to be able to set up one of our crop block sections in one day, um, which 
doesn't, if you're coming from a larger scale, it doesn't sound that amazing because we have 24 bed uh, sections. There are 100 foot beds. Um, but going from that market garden scale, but taking a lot of the labor out of it, um, we to, to be able to form, fertilize, compost, um, and then after that stale bed, you know, a, a crop block, um, for us to be able to set up 24 beds in a day is kind of, it's kind of better than we were doing it when we hadn't been using, say, the compost box, I guess you could call it, and the drop spreader. And so that, that's created some efficiencies where if we have eight crop blocks on our, on our farm, you know, within a little over a week, we can set up the whole farm into like raised, composted, fertilized, raised beds ready for being stale bedded and then planted or seeded and then pre-emergent flame weeded. Right. Right. Well, and I think that that speed is, I mean, it's important no matter where you are, but especially in a, you know, with the changing climate and, and that, that chance that you just might have that wet spring when you can't get in, having those ways to get, get things prepared in a hurry really yeah. matters. Yeah, it, that's very true. And, um, the faster we can get it all prepared, a lot of times, um, about half our farm, if we have five dry, reasonably sunny days, we can get out there and work the soil. Um, but you know, in the early spring, sometimes that's really hard to find those five days that, that it dries out enough. And sometimes you have a window of, of even just 10 hours before, you know, where it's dry enough to work, but not, uh, but, but the rain's coming, you know? So that we've been in that situation actually pretty much every spring with some of the field work we, we do. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about about your the infrastructure that you have on the farm to to operate those two acres and what what do you guys have for for buildings so um the we have one big main pole barn that i believe is something like 30 or 40 by 50 feet um and that is that's really kind of our self-contained like multi-purpose building on the north side of it we have a, a lean-to going off of it and that's our packing shed and then coming into the barn from the back uh, is where we have access right off the packing shed into the refrigeration and then i'm currently finishing up a deck that is in a, a loading dock into our box truck so you pull it right out of the walk-in we're still using uh, just hand dollies because of the scale we're on. We're not, yeah. we're not quite to a full pallet uh, system, e even though we are delivering a little over, you know, a couple pallets into town sometimes, but not all to the same person and or, or account and that sort of a thing. So, uh, all that to right. say, uh, pretty an uh, efficient system there, coming in from the field into the pack out into the fridge. Um, into the delivery truck, out the middle door of the front of the barn. You know, that's that's where our box truck backs into. Is like this. If you look at pictures, the middle door of our barn is where that box truck goes in. Um, we also have. I've got you know my top 
my uh, shop, kind of what tools I do have and I have been able to acquire, I have set up in there. So I've got, you know, a welder and a drill press and a this and a that kind of set up in there. And then uh, all of our hand tools kind of on your way out to the field. Uh, so as you can, and then the, the tractor parks in on the right side. So it's all kind of, it's pretty, I actually kind of like having this one building that's been, I've spent the last three years juggling things around and really seeing where things fit in, but I like it right. as refrigeration, it, uh, the packing shed on the north side. So it's cool, uh, all season long and, and shaded, um, so that that's been a good thing, and that was built by the owner. Um, so that was something that, that really worked out well that he put in and probably didn't necessarily know how or even you know how how it would be used, but it's turned out to be really good. Um, the other infrastructure we have, we have two smaller hoop houses, uh, twenty by seventy five, and they're not really situated exactly where I would have put them they were there when i got here um or the length or anything but we use them and we've just used the heck out of them grown tons of stuff in them uh and then ashley and i put up a new 30 by 96 uh this last winter uh or so this last season was our first year growing tomatoes and those, and we have the V trusses set up so we can do the overhead trellising, kind of lower and lean. And we we graft all of our tomatoes going into that house. Um, right. The the tractor we're using is uh actually a Kubota thirty nine oh one. It's like thirty eight horse, and we have the the uh, ag tires on there, so they're pretty thin. So they work with our small uh furrows between the beds right it was the tractor that i could find that i could set up four foot on center you know and it could work with our small beds so that the transplanting we have to do by hand could be a little easier um on us the uh anyways so that's a tractor we use and recently we've been making some uh some purchases we did find a i was gonna build but an undercutter or some people call them a bed lifter um but i actually found one from a friend of ours who is who's a farmer and is moving on so he sold me this really nice undercutter that fits our beds perfectly for harvesting any kind of uh well a lot of different crops like especially carrots and garlic. Um, that's going to be a huge labor, labor saver for us because um, we're mostly selling a lot of our crops wholesale. So it's a really different story if you're getting like, say, $3 per bunch of carrots or if you're selling bulk or bunched carrots for, say, $1.50 a bunch or $1.25 a pound. Um, all of a sudden, hand digging all those carrots doesn't sound as fun, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I've dug a lot of carrots for the last years, but that was one of the top things on our list is as soon as we can get the tractor that's fitted to our 
to our beds and we kind of work out some of that. And we have these raised beds that can, the raised bed can be used as like a guidance system for cultivation. Then it started to be like, okay, how can we harvest these carrots without me, you know, blowing out my knees by the time I'm, you know, however old. Um, so the undercutter has been awesome. Like it's one of my, it's one of my favorite tools. Um, I know that when we got one on our farm and I think we were doing maybe 10 acres of the, the year that we got it, it was, it, it changed everything for us. Yeah. I mean, it was a, you know, it was like all of it. I mean, especially with those crops, but we just found so many places to use that. I mean, anything uh -huh. that, anything that you're harvesting out of the ground to be able to yeah. loosen it up with the tractor ahead of time was just incredible. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, I mean, we grow a decent amount of garlic for, for our scale and a decent amount of carrot. So that's the most obvious, but, um, you know, obviously also any other parsnips, um, if you're going to do a large harvest of onions, um, I, you know, I just, if you do whatever scores in there or salsavie or that kind of stuff, which I don't really do a lot of, but you know, it's just amazing to just drive down a bed and then just pull all the carrots up or we've been using it a lot for our leeks. Um, and that's one thing a lot of people are like, I can't make leeks, um, profitable enough to grow. Like it's just too time consuming. And th that's what made the difference for us was just undercutting three beds of leeks, you know, or something, which on our scale is kind of a lot of leeks. Um, and just harvesting all of them and cleaning them up decently and putting them in the fridge and then just sell, like cleaning them up till they're perfect before either market or wholesale. Um, that's made leaks work for us. Whereas like before we just lost money on them. So it's a tool that is just really simple. So simple, no moving parts, just drags in the dirt, you know, but it's, it's a real game changer for us. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that term game changer, but I, I would, I would apply it to the undercutter. So farming in Eugene, you know, you got started three years ago, but the local food scene in Eugene is, I mean, it's been around forever. Yeah, you know, the, it must have been a real challenge to get started in such a crowded market. It has been a real challenge, uh, Chris. the The local farm scene here is really amazing, and in some ways, very inspiring. Um, there's there's farms here that have been around for thirty years, um, and they're great farms um, and really nice people, and there's other farms that have been around 15 years and others 10 years. And so when we show up at market, we're, we're definitely the new kids on the block and we definitely have to be able to bring something unique. Um, and that's been difficult, especially at market. We've, we've kind of done market on and off. Uh, speaking of a uh, farmer's market, we've done it off and on. And it's always been really hard for us setting up next to these amazing farms that uh, have beautiful produce and they really have the infrastructure that, that we um, most of the time have not had and uh, are kind of doing everything by hand in the first couple of years. Uh, so that's been an interesting challenge for us. And I think I'm only just beginning to get a little bit of a handle on the market 
and where maybe where our spot is amongst these just great farms. Um, but to give you an idea about farmers market, like I said, is very competitive in a friendly sort of way. Like these are all of our friends. These are all people we really like. Um, but it's, but it, you know, we're all selling this stuff and, you know, a lot of it's the same. And, and a lot of people have been buying from, uh, you know, Horton Road Organics or Wet, uh, Wintergreen Farm for 20 years. And they have great stuff. So, um, so we've never done good at market because we don't have any seniority and we typically would be in not a great spot. And we've done it off and on, but we're kind of leaning more towards not actually doing farmer's market and just not going toe to toe, you know, as it were with these larger farms that are, that I, you know, if I was a consumer, I would be happy to support. So, and the CSA market is also very, uh, I'd say saturated maybe is the word. Um, for example, this last week I went and I set up a little booth at this, uh, what, what you could think of as, as essentially like a farm CSA, like trade show kind of a thing where right. we all set up a booth and we invite the whole community and everyone comes out and you meet, it's called, that's my farmer and you meet your farmer or you learn about CSA programs. It's also a fundraiser for low income families to get CSA shares, which is awesome. Um, but you know, I was one of 15 farms there and I, you know, I look around and I'm like, these are all great farms, like, and they're all people we know. Um, and they're all doing a really good job. So it's kind of a thing where it's, uh, it's so good for the consumers in the area and prices are really reasonable and everyone's putting a lot of work into marketing, but it's hard to be a new farm in the area. Um, so we've actually moved towards doing more wholesale to natural food stores. Um, and that's actually what we do. Like most of our product goes to, um, we we have a small CSA program that's about 40 members. So partially our produce is going there and that's not 40 members because that's where we put the cap on it. That's 40 members because every year we market it as much as we possibly can. And that's how many we get. Um, and we have a lot of returning members, but it's, we haven't, uh, that's just the biggest CSA member we've CSA membership we've ever been able to recruit so so we always we always do csa and we love doing csa um but it's always been a smaller csa program um and the rest of what we do is all wholesale to natural food stores and restaurants and that that makes sense with where where i'm coming from because um it with this being excelsior farm and with the owner starting it to grow food for his restaurant. Obviously I deliver weekly um, and often twice a week to the Excelsior restaurant. So I kind of had this wholesale to restaurant kind of uh, inclination from the, from, from the beginning, because that's, you know, from day one, I was planting crops and talking with the chef there and uh, growing as much as possible for them. So I've kind of, we've just expanded that into growing for, uh, 
about 15 accounts in town now. And uh, we deliver, uh, starting in June, we deliver twice a week, but just once a week through the, uh, I guess, what you might think of as off season. And we, you know, we typically deliver like 40 something weeks, 48 weeks, probably out of the year. So, uh, and during the winter, it's pretty sparse. Uh, it's just salad mix and some some leeks and storage crops and stuff like that. But um, yeah, but natural food source has been a real has has been kind of our jam lately, I guess, uh, because we've met all these uh, managers of the produce sections at uh, about five natural food stores in town. And we were just really hit it off with them. And we talk with them on a personal basis every week. And we really enjoy working with them because they've been, um, I think that these produce managers even specifically have been really instrumental in, um, helping build a local food system. So you always think of farmers as the ones out there doing the hard work, um, trying to make this happen. But these produce managers, they're working long hours and they're doing everything they can. And they're, they're looking at a lot of different fresh lists, you know, availability lists every week. And they're juggling a lot to, to, and they're always supporting us as much as they can. So it's, it's kind of a, been a somewhat inspiring working with them and they've been our best customers. Um, so that's, that's so far, that's kind of our niche, I guess. Um, is natural food stores, restaurants, and CSA. And I yeah. say, really, salad greens, uh, if, I, we, if, if we had our top 10 crops lined up, I mean, salad, baby leaf salad greens and different salad mixes are like way over and above anything else by a lot. You know, maybe it's a quarter or a th- maybe a third, probably coming up on a half of our income. Um, wow. Yeah. So we're kind of moving more into doing that. And that's something I've been working really hard on for three years to do the stale bedding. And I use, uh, you know, personally, just being the who I am and what I prefer. I, I like this little six-row cedar thing. So pretty intensive salad crops. Um, and harvesting those and you know we're doing maybe two to three hundred pounds a week um but it's probably looking more like three to four hundred pounds a week coming up during the main season of of salad mix right and i should say salad mix items which would include any oh we have about six different kind of defined products so you do the salad mix now you're doing that to the grocery stores are you doing that bags or is that going out in clamshells or are you just selling that bulk so we do bulk and bagged and okay be the same products available as bulk or bagged um and we do a pr- almost even like it's almost right down the middle of, of bulk and bagged and we kind of piloted this bagged idea at two or three places a little bit last season. And it seemed to just show a lot of promise. The the managers, that, like I said, we the produce managers at these places um, just really 
were encouraging of us to, to do it and to go forward with it. So um, this season, we kind of really put it all together the very best we could and, uh, uh, you know, got another label maker and uh, kind of upped our game a little bit and did the UPC barcodes and things like that um, so that it could really be an easy an easy thing to stick on the shelf, you know, at a store. And because even though these natural food stores are so committed to buying local, uh, there's still any of the, I should say, any of the bagged or clamshelled um, salad mixes that they're selling are still mostly, um, mostly California grown, whereas maybe the bulk mix is local. So right. it was a little thing that just, that, uh, maybe no one else in the area was really pursuing because it's kind of a pain to, <laughs> to work out all the little details. And, and, uh, it is a lot of extra labor, you know, to, to, uh, it, I mean, when I do bulk, it goes so much faster and so much easier than going through all the extra trouble to, to do the bag thing really well. But are you able to get a higher price for the bag stuff or are you just, is that just the price of entering into that marketplace? So we do get a little bit higher price. Um, and it depends where you're coming from it. Um, you know, I, the, our bulk is just, is going, we're only charging like 50 cents more per pound for these, for the, for the bagged. Um, so it's not a huge profit. I mean, it's not a huge difference um, for the amount of labor, but it's in a way, it's kind of our cost of getting into to something in the market here. Um, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. I mean, I think sometimes that's that's what it takes, especially in a crowded marketplace. I mean, mm -hmm. salad greens are clearly a, a profitable crop that a lot of people are are interested in getting into. If you want to compete in that marketplace, you have to find a way in that somebody else hasn't already done. And I mean, doing things like nice labels and UPC codes, that can be that can make the difference for you. Yeah. And and that's that's been a, you know, like I said, if I sell half bulk and half bagged and I'm only selling the bag for 50 cents more a pound um, and I'm selling a case of a dozen bags, you know, 12 count bags or whatever it's a lot of extra work, but it's a way that we sell, you know, another hundred, you know, however many pounds, 100, 150 pounds of salad mix. Um, that is not at a super higher price, but it's at least we sold it, you know, is, you know, and so we got to work out all of our costs for doing that and make sure we're not, you know, we're not coming up short or even or something, but I, that's been something that we're interested in pursuing and, trying to make that process of growing salad mix, harvesting process, you know, washing, packing, delivering. Um, we're trying to make that a lot more efficient, efficient. So we're always trying to, we do a little bit of process mapping. Actually, we do a lot of process mapping um, in the winter time. We kind of try to go through as many processes on our farm as we can. When you say process mapping, I feel like that's something I should know what that means, but I don't. So uh, it's nothing It's nothing complicated, but just a way of, it's just what it sounds like, just taking a process on your farm, like, for example, wholesale deliveries. And 
getting a big pad of paper is what we did and sticky notes and like just go through every step and every step that you could either make more efficient or or any step that you can take out is a big one if you could take any steps out and it would still accomplish the same goal or if you can combine steps um it's just kind of a way of stepping back and looking at a process on your farm and um it's something that Ben Hartman talks about in his book that lean farm book yeah um and I didn't think he got into details about it, but from the first season, it was something I was interested in doing. So for bed prep, you know, I was always, you know, mapping my processes and thinking it through in that way. Um, and especially since his book came out, because we have a friend of ours who has a a background in kind of like lean business management stuff. He works for print factories. Um, and so he he met with us like every day this winter. And we just, you know, map, we're just mapping out processes on our farm, trying to uh, make it, make it more efficient. So that really it's, I mean, for us, it's kind of a sink or swim kind of a thing. It's, um, you know, for us, our farm kind of has to be efficient with the the amount of labor that we have available. And, um, you know, we might eventually grow and be able to hire a couple employees and, and things might change, and I think they will change. But uh, for now, that's kind of where we're at. It's just like really honing our processes so that when we do get help, we're actually able to use that help well, you know, because there'll already be all these processes in place where it's, um, which are always evolving, but which are really kind of honed. Love that idea. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. So speaking of help, I mean, you you mentioned earlier in the show, you guys just recently acquired a new member of the of the farm family. Yeah. Obviously not going to be helping anytime <laughs> real soon, but, yeah. you know, on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's that going? That's it. You know what? It's been a huge blessing that, you know, have a daughter. Um, we have a five week old daughter named Marion and she's really cute and we really like her a lot. Um, for it's funny because for the first two years I was running the farm on my own. And then last year was when, um, the summer before Ashley and I got married and really last season was kind of our first year to have us both on the farm full time. And it was felt really great. Um, and then the middle of summer, Ashley started having morning sickness and it was like I said, the hottest summer ever. So, um, you know, that, that was a huge challenge for her. And then, uh, through the whole pregnancy, um, she, she's been super tough and was like worked pretty much. I think she was actually at the farm the day before the birth. It was hardcore. Yeah. She's pretty, she's pretty hardcore. Um, but, um, needless to say, like this spring has been insane totally insane. (laughs) Um, where you've got, we got wholesale orders happening since, uh, I guess since March, uh, just March. So it's not, we haven't been doing a long time, but you know, a month and a half or whatever it's been since pretty much the beginning of April. And, uh, I'm trying to build more fridge space because we're out of fridge space and, uh, we've got a lot of projects going on trying to get, um, really trying to get a barrel washer up and running, kind of going back, you know, just 
farm stuff. You know, we're super busy. And I said, you know, I'm super busy doing farm stuff and she's super busy doing Marion stuff, like just nursing and taking care of her and recovering, you know, because five weeks yeah. out, she's, you know, the first month, or I guess traditionally speaking, that first 40 day period has always been looked at as kind of this um, just period of recovery where you're like almost, you know, not supposed to leave the house kind of a thing. Um, and so it's, it's been back to a one person farm and we've been, it's, it's been a big blessing to have more wholesale orders and more accounts coming on. Um, but it's also been very challenging, you know, and we did make the decision very recently to just totally not even, um, pursue doing farmer's market because in last year we did farmer's market csa and wholesale and we just had to prioritize you know the season and just say you know our first year with a newborn kid um you know there's just some things we're gonna have to pull back the reins on and that was that was it for us for sure one last question before we turn to the lightning round. Mm -hmm. Where are you guys at? And when you start talking about pulling back from some things in your third year of business, are are you guys a financially viable farm at this point? Is are things working for you guys? That's a that's a great question, Chris. Yeah. So since so the first year coming on as a farm manager and the owner just kind of handing me the reins, he told me like, you know, if you can make it work, then it could be your thing. Um, and so from, from the first year I paid myself. So I essentially, I was, I was making up how much I would get paid and how much we would have for farm ex expenses, the budget. And we, we, the partnership, there was a little bit of, there's well, a decent amount of cash flow assistance there, like almost like a CSA sort of a thing, but with a close partnership with the restaurant, like we'll help you get your seed and your fertilizer and row cover and stuff. And then, you know, at the end of the season, it's got to all add up though. So the first, the first season, um, I paid myself, you know, not a lot for how many hours I was working, but I paid myself a salary and I paid for all the bills, but you know, we didn't have a margin at the end of the year. Um, right. first year, I don't think that's that bad. I, you know, maybe we did somewhere around 40,000, um, or I did, I guess I did 40,000. Um, and then we've always, we've, it's been pretty steady, uh, just about every year we've, you know, I've, or we have added on about $15,000 more in sales. So it's been a slow, steady growth and it's, you know, things are slow when it's one person, like really slow, kind of painfully slow. Um, Sometimes as far as like getting infrastructure in place and all that, um, it's just so different when if you have a crew and just like knock out a project, but you know, I've been kind of, we've been conservative, not spending a lot and moving along that way. So, so this season we're on track to do about 80,000 sales total, like gross sales, um, and, a, and paying Ashley and me, you know, paying ourselves um, about, uh, about half of that. So 40,000, but inevitably being a, a young farm that's still getting a lot of these essential infrastructure things in place. Um, 
we're still we're going to be reinvesting a you know a portion of that 40,000 into equipment like our barrel washer and you know whatever it whatever it is that we really think you know maybe a paper pot transplanter for some of our intensive salad greens and things like that um right so i would say financially viable yes um growing and still in that early um stage like we're we're definitely still in that early stage where um we're making investments on infrastructure and trying to um not get into too much debt and pay ourselves you know enough to live on which we're living pretty simply so um that's you know we're ma- we make a living and we're buying equipment i guess is the easy way to say <laughs> that's a pretty decent place to be in your third year fourth year in business mm-hmm. oh. so yeah all right it's reasonable not not spectacular but reasonable you know great and with that let's turn to the lightning round jeremy what's your favorite tool on the farm besides the flame weeder so i thought of kind of two angles on this um, one would be if I just said, what's from a totally utilitarian standpoint, like what saves me the most work on this farm period, it would just be the most simple answer. I think would just be like the tractor, you know, generally, <laughs> um, yep. just because, you know, we use it for so many different things and so many implements and all that. If, if though I was to answer it in a more kind of sentimental, personal way, um, there's this little harvest knife that I got, I kind of inherited it and it's this really thin carbon steel blade with this little wooden handle. And I've harvested so much with it for just the years that I have been farming. Um, and I kind of have a whole, like when I'm sharpening it, sharpening it, I kind of have a whole little method and it's, I've harvested tens of thousands of pounds of, you know, produce with it. And it's become kind of fitted to my hand, even like, like some of where my hand rubs on it, it's just kind of worn in. Um, and I've just never been able to find any other harvest knife that I can even really use because I just have, I really like this one so much. Um, so that, that'd be maybe more of a, like, we have a joke on the farm, we call it like Excalibur, you know, and (laughs) but it's like my knife and if i you know i'm always like paranoid we're gonna lose it or something or you know eventually some you know a little break or whatever i'll have sharpened it so many times it'll just disappear and you know but where it'll wear down but that's my that's my answer in a more personal way love it all right and what's your favorite crop to grow so i i would say that um mix of those uh, salad greens more or less of baby leaf and head um green you know headed greens that we harvest and sell is such a good crop for us and i really actually do enjoy growing it because i've focused on it for the last three years um really with the weed prevention and the harvesting and packing and all these things it's it's become a real central crop that i i really enjoy Awesome. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? So, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. you still kind of are your beginning farmer self, right. but you know. Yeah. So it is a funny question to ask someone who's been 
farming full time for, I guess, four seasons, including my time at groundwork. But, um, but I, I would say this. So I, I heard this from someone who's older and wiser than me. And I thought, you know, in the last couple, well, the last year, I found it really helpful. Um, and that is when, you know, you're obviously going to get frustrated farming. It's just going to happen. You know, nobody gets into farming and like has a frustration free life, you know? Um, so when you get frustrated with something, you really have to stop and realize, um, instead of just getting bent out of shape, which often I've, I've kind of just gotten bent out of shape about and just like, grr, you know, I'm so frustrated about this thing. And you just focusing on that, right? You're just like, ah, why is this this way? Like, this this just really sucks. Um, Take that and kind of flip it, you know, because your frustration is actually the most accurate um, indicator of like where a process needs to be improved. Right. So when you're when you're getting frustrated with something, it's it's really actually the best indicator of where to start in improving a process. And so that gives you this proactive way of approaching, you know, whatever the problem is at hand. And that's been a huge helper for us on the farm is just taking that frustration and actually using it as a tool. Um to improve processes. I like the way that takes something that we would normally see as being a bad thing, the frustration and and the emotion that's that that encapsulates mm-hmm. and turns it into something that's actually good because it is an emotion that's pointing you to something that you need to do something about. Yeah, the the way I've kind of come to look at it is that frustration is actually you reacting to you know, you're 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 reacting to something and saying like, this process is terrible, you know, and that's a perfect pointer at like, oh, that's the thing that needs to be improved. And then you switch into that other mode and you'll notice I didn't say it's my favorite tool on the farm though. So, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for an awesome interview today. It was really great to have you on the show. Great to be talking with you, Chris. Thanks. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 65 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Mueller. That's M-U-E-L-L-E-R. If you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you'd enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and your referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing list circle of listeners. And that's what it's really all about. One more thing. I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I received through the FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com website. Please let me know who you would like to hear from. And I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. (laughs) 